Hello and welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. I'm Daniel Connolly here with Megan Gower. So this is our first podcast where we're recording once a week after doing every other week throughout the summer in the off season. But in the lead up to the season, it's only a few weeks away. We're in November now, so we're going to be going once a week and we're going to be having guests. So I know at the start of the show, we said we're going to have guests on frequently. That's my bad. I wasn't great at getting them on, but we have a guest this week, Megan Pattison Colmo, former player, coach, SNY analyst. Now we had a just incredible interview with her. You, it's absolutely must listen. It's a great way to kick off our guests. She's got some amazing Gino stories, especially one in particular with her and Rebecca Lobo that you just got to listen to it. And then she talks about her time at SNY and how important CPTV was to building UConn women's basketball to where it is now. And then we make her drop some hot takes at the end too. So that's worth sticking around for. But before we get to that, we're just going to hit a few news bits. So today, which is Thursday, November 5th, UConn men's basketball just got shut down because one player who wasn't identified by the school tested positive for COVID. Luckily that doesn't affect UConn women's basketball, even though they share a building, but we just felt it was an important thing to mention. Also for the second time in three podcasts, we joked last week that immediately after we finished recording, some schedule news came out. Well, basically the same thing happened last week where we finished recording and then that next day, the Big East released their first four games of the schedule for December. And then earlier this week, UConn officially released its full non-conference schedule, even though that mostly amounted to just the South Carolina date getting announced. But UConn women's basketball is going to kick off Big East play at Seton Hall on December 6th. So team that gave them a little trouble last season on the road. Then their home opener is going to be December 15th against Butler. Then four days later, December 19th, they're going to play Xavier. Then they close out that first portion of their Big East schedule on December 22nd, right before the holidays at Villanova. Then obviously they're going to have a holiday break there. And then Big East play is going to resume on December 30th, although the schedule and dates for that haven't been announced. The non-conference schedule, which we've already known most of it, but we'll run through it anyways. November 28th against Quinnipiac at the Hall of Fame Challenge. November 29th is either Maine or Mississippi State, probably Mississippi State in the same tournament. Then December 4th, Louisville at Mohegan's Sun. January 7th, Baylor on the road, January 21st at Tennessee, and then February 8th. That's home against South Carolina. Weirdly, that's only that's UConn's only home non-conference game, but obviously really tough slate. We've kind of gone into it a little bit, but Megan, what are your thoughts on all the schedule news that's come out? I think in terms of the Big East, um, you'll notice the first four games, it's no DePaul and no Marquette. So they've got a little bit Mm -hmm. easier stretch of the Big East to start out, which I think we talked a little bit last week about how for kind of the new players, those first four Big East games are a good chance to kind of get some more minutes in for the freshmen and get them adjusted to playing on the college kind of games. So I think without those top Big East opponents in there, it's even more true now because you don't have a team like DePaul or Marquette on that lineup, but we did see Seton Hall give UConn a little bit of trouble last year. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that first one plays out. I think the other three should be easier. That'll probably be the toughest one of that stretch for the Big East. And then for non-conference opponents, I think, you know, 
we knew most of this already. South Carolina gets added in February, so we get to see, once again, UConn kind of playing one of those tough games later in the season, which I think is one, a really good measure for where they are kind of heading into March, got about a month between that game and the start of postseason play. And then also just kind of another test on the schedule that's just spread out as they're throughout conference play. So break from the conference play and a tougher opponent mixed in there. Right, for sure. I, I always like how the bigger non-conference games are kind of sprinkled in throughout the season because obviously it sucks when those big conference or those big non-conference games are so much fun to just cover and watch and there's so much excitement around them. You really don't want them all stacked at the beginning of the season when you don't really know what either team's going to look like. So having them kind of s- swirled in throughout conference play, I think we will get a pretty good sense of where UConn is going into whatever the postseason might look like. I think just, I don't know if it's really a takeaway more than anything, but it is a little bizarre that their home opener isn't until December 15th. They're going to play one, two, three, four, four games away from Gamble Pavilion. And obviously their first three games are at Mohegan Sun. So I don't think anyone's going to be shedding tears outside of Connecticut for UConn's plight, but it, it is just kind of a long time to be away from Gamble and then obviously only one non-conference game at home too. So as you said, it's not really a super exciting slate those first four games, but I think it will be interesting to kind of be able to see the bench get a little deeper in those games and get a more complete sense of what this team is by that point. Exactly. I think you kick off the season, you know, you've got hopefully that Mississippi State game and Louisville game. So kind of bigger type games like how much do they mean really I don't know when you play a game on November 29th 29th it's like does that win or loss really mean anything come March that they're probably gonna be very different teams by then but then yeah you get into that big east slate so you got a feel for where they're at and then kind of some easier games for development before you get another test come January yeah if UConn comes in and loses by like 15 to Mississippi State or Louisville like I don't know how much that really says because the team didn't really have a huge preseason to work with, no exhibition games, and you're mixing so many new players in that. I think there might be some growing pains with this team, and it could be a little tough where you don't have many easier games in that really early stretch. So, yeah, I think it. I think at the very least it'll be just really intriguing more than anything, but I think it's just going to be nice to finally see some basketball too. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. It's like counting down the days. I don't know where we're at right now, but <laughs> it's close. <laughs> I think it was three weeks from yesterday, so we're getting really close, and it's exciting. For sure. Unfortunately, we won't be able to watch these games in person. At least fans won't be able to. We're not sure what the situation with media is going to be like yet. But this past week, you kind of announced that men's and women's basketball games at Gamble will initially be closed to the public because – UConn submitted a plan to the state trying to get, I think the number was around 2,000 to 2,500 fans, which would be right around 20 to 25% of the capacity. The state health officials shut that down. So it's going to be limited only to four tickets per every player and every coach. So pretty small numbers. Basically, it's going to be closed to the public. So I don't think it's a huge surprise, especially with the way numbers are trending and the fact that it's inside compared to outside. But at the same time, getting to look forward to going to basketball games once it turns to November and December to get through the winter, it it just sucks to 
have the word be official at this point. Right. I agree with that. Like, I think it was pretty much expected. You kind of knew it was coming, but it's still disappointed to hear that, like, there's going to be basketball, like, hopefully, but there's not going to be fans for a while. Well, I guess we should say not fans at Gamble. I don't think Mohegan Sun has made any kind of announcement about what they're doing yet. Um, I know for some of the men's tournaments, they've said, like, ticket information to come. So I guess it's still TBD on what's going on there. I think I've read that they aren't planning to have fans, but are going to reevaluate it soon. But again, with the way things are trending, it probably isn't going to lead to there being fans. So the most likely scenario is that UConn's going to play in front of pretty much empty crowds the entire season, which sucks. And I think it will have a pretty sizable impact. I know I, know I saw some quotes from uh, one story today that said it's going to be like scrimmaging. So it's just going to be really interesting to follow it and see how it all goes with the, cause it's, cause it's just so different than what we've seen from UConn the past really 25 years. Right. I think where it comes in bigger, I think, you know, some of those big games or whatever, what conference games that aren't a big deal, like for your Baylor game and well, they, they're playing at Baylor. So who knows what's going to happen there, but um, like the home games that are your big ticket, like, non-conference matchups where you're usually playing in front of a sold-out arena and that momentum from the crowd definitely plays the part in those games it's going to be a very different experience to not have that kind of going into those games this year yeah for sure this is kind of off on a little bit of a different tangent but what an incredible time for UConn to leave the AAC and not have to play Florida teams because I think it's fair to say that Florida's reaction to COVID has been absolutely horrific and they basically acted like it doesn't exist. And I know the men's basketball team canceled their non-conference game with university of Florida, but I don't think you want to be sending any UConn teams to go to Florida at all. Cause there really aren't any restrictions or anything to keep the team safe when they're going through the state. So um, yeah, I think if there's any year, like, obviously it's great that UConn's in the big East to begin with, but just in terms of COVID alone, it's great that they don't have to go to, these florida schools anymore yeah you'd be like seeing people on screen in a florida school granted not that the florida school has ever had full crowds but the closest thing to like full crowd that you've seen in a long time and just be like what on earth is happening down there i feel like that's how i feel every time i see like a football game in like florida right now i'm just like what what is that is that from this year i don't understand (laughs) right well in those south florida games actually got decent crowds because they've built a pretty decent fan base. And I know Jose Fernandez, their head coach, mentioned this last year, but they've built, basically built their fan base off the back of UConn fans that were showing up to watch UConn play and then just decided to keep coming and watching USF play. So he would joke that, yeah, for the entire season, we'd have a bunch of people show up wearing USF gear, cheering for our team, going crazy. And then the second UConn walks through the door, they rip off those green shirts and they've got UConn stuff on underneath. And suddenly they hate our guts. Like the change is incredible, but just unrelated, but it is incredible that UConn can build fan bases for other schools (laughs) just by their existence. Like, (laughs) (laughs) It is true though. I feel like it happens in a lot of places. Like I have one of my good friends from UConn lives out in, in LA and UConn played out at UCLA a couple of years ago and it was like sold out and then I just went to like a regular UCLA game, UCLA women's game with her last year we literally bought like second row tickets for $12 five hours before oh and there was like no one in there it's just a totally different world it makes you like realize how spoiled we are it's like that you get to watch like even for like AAC games like 
pretty full crowds. <laughs> right. Well, it's also going to be really weird. I honestly don't know how Big East women's basketball has done it in the past, but I think for a handful of Big East schools, they kind of have a similar situation to what UConn does where they have an on-campus gym that's smaller and especially smaller than Gample, like more of a field house size where it only has single digit thousands of seats. And the, at least the men's team doesn't play there. I know that's the case for Providence, DePaul. I think Villanova plays most of their games at Wells Fargo center in downtown Philadelphia, Georgetown, Seton hall. So all those games are now going to be in those tiny little gyms. And I think it's going to be kind of fun. Obviously it might affect the men more, but just to see games going on in such small intimate atmospheres, it'll be kind of like that Colgate game that UConn played for Brianna Stewart's homecoming four years ago now, where so many people packed into that tiny gym or that one time a few years back that UConn played at Hartford. It'll be like, not that people will be allowed in, but it'll still be cool to see on TV them playing in these small little gyms when it's obviously such a huge national brand. Yeah, it's going to be a lot like when you watch some of the like major Thanksgiving tournaments and they're playing in these random places like in Atlantis and like Hawaii where there's not like a big basketball gym. So it looks like they're literally playing in a high school gym, but you've got like the best programs in the country. Or when they're literally setting up like in a ballroom, basketball courts with stands and it's like there's light on the basketball court and then it's basically pitch black everything around. <laughs> so it, I think it just for the entertainment factor alone, it's going to be fun. I wonder if they'll do like fake crowd noise or anything kind of like see, like they do different things in professional so it'll be interesting to see like what the NCAA does or honestly yeah. like I would love if they didn't do fake crowd noise like it would be a lot more effort for SNY because they need to have someone on the drop button constantly but imagine basically Gino mic'd up except for every single game like that would be incredible there's even some games where he gets so mad that you can hear him through the game microphones anyways so even if you're pumping in crowd noise I feel like we're gonna hear coaches a lot better and wasn't that a pretty big thing in the WNBA bubble where you could hear those head coaches a lot better yeah you could a lot of times especially when they're pissed you could hear what they're saying <laughs> I think it is I don't know it adds like a different element it makes it fun I think what the WNBA did was like DJ like home court advantage so like whoever like was the because they play music during the games in the WNBA so like the home team got like pick what the DJ was playing during the game but I don't know I at least liked it better than uh like the NBA virtual fans I felt like that was just awkward to look at (laughs) yeah I'm about to sound like an old man for a little bit but I first off I hate how music gets played during games and at both the WNBA and NBA level I also can't stand the virtual fans. Like, I don't care. Like, I understand you want to get your fans close, but it's extremely corny. It's really awkward. It honestly just, you could use that space for so many better things. Like, look, I'm not normally a huge, like, oh, business is everything person, but please fill that up with ad space instead. Like, do something. I just, I've just never, like, ever since it started, I've been kind of like, Mm, that's weird. I, I don't like that. I hope that doesn't continue with, I, I'm okay with like the, I know baseball's done it a lot, putting like the fan heads like in the stands. I think that to a certain degree is kind of cool, especially if you can use it to raise money for a charity or some good cause or something like that. But yeah, please, please no virtual fans and no music during the game. 
Oh, I totally agree with the music during the game. Like, I grew up obviously going to UConn games, going to college games, and then I went to my first, like, pro game. I think it was, like, after college, and I was like, why is there music playing? What is happening? I was so confused. And I was like, oh, this is, like, what they do. Like, they play music while the game is going on. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's going to be, like, nothing we've ever seen. I think it's obviously like we want to watch the game stuff, but it will just be interesting to see how everything around it ends up going to. And just like if Gino's chewing someone out on the sideline, like, is that going to get picked up on the cameras? Are we going to be able to hear that? Is it going to be more inside access where they're actually intentionally miking up coaches more often? So hopefully it just leads to more access because there's less access. If that somehow makes sense. Yeah, I think from a broadcast perspective, too, I hope they get creative with stuff. I think in, like, the WNBA playoffs, like, they had a lot of different, like, players that weren't playing and stuff on, like, the halftime shows and stuff. So I hope because everyone's home, they do stuff like that for the college season, too. Like, have, like, Super on your halftime show for the UConn games and things like that. That'll be fun. There's never too much Super content. Exactly. <laughs> they could just put her on every game. I would be fine with that. <laughs> Did we talk about her big news last episode or not we did not i think that came after the last episode so really oh we have some breaking (laughs) news (laughs) that isn't technically immediate breaking news but sue bird and megan rapino are getting engaged huge news that came out um i believe megan proposed to sue in the caribbean yeah, I'm not right? sure exactly where they were, but definitely someplace tropical. Um, the picture was like on the edge of like a, it looked like the edge of like an infinity pool or something. Um, but yeah, super exciting news. Like the best sports power couple in my opinion. So yeah, I don't think it's particularly close, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like, so awesome news. I'm super happy for Sue Bird, who's just the best. And then Megan Rapino, obviously. Like, you could just tell from those Instagram lives. Like, yeah. Megan Rapino is an absolute handful. <laughs> Super knows exactly how to handle it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think one of my favorite parts about the WNBA bubble was just trying to see like what outfit Megan Rapino had on in the sidelines. Like, she had some pretty crazy tie dye ensembles going on. It was a good time. <laughs> the number of World Cups between those two and championships just unbelievable. <laughs> it's insane. Also, like, leave it to the two of them to find a good way to have a good year in 2020. Like, no one's having a good 2020 except for the two of them. <laughs> also, that's going to be the most incredible wedding maybe of all time. Like, oh, yeah. Just, you have... We confirmed this with Megan in our interview with her, but obviously Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi said that UConn players can outdrink everyone. So you take all that together and then you mix it in with a very large soccer population and every single everyone else in between that's gonna get in there like obviously Gino's gonna be at it and assuming they have a large wedding which I can't imagine they won't but (laughs) god like I I just hope that us outsiders can get a peek of what that party is gonna be like because it it will be incredible yeah, I'm going to need Ashlyn Harris, the U.S. Women National Team goalie <laughs> that like went viral for documenting their like post-World Cup celebrations to come up big that night. <laughs> I need like full Instagram story coverage of that wedding. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, honestly, like someone should just be allowed into the wedding as a media person to document it all on social media. That would be an extremely important job. Like, be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> 
won't tease it any longer. We'll get into our interview with Meg Como. It's honestly couldn't have asked for a better way to kick off the podcast. Uh, guests with her, just great for new fans, old fans, even people who aren't fans of the program. It's just very. It was very very fun to do, and we thank Meg for coming on and. Um, she's going to be back in the future. Absolutely. She's, she'll be a recurring guest on the show. <laughs> so we finally got our first guest here on Chasing Perfection. We've got Megan Pattison Como. She played for UConn from 1988 to 1992, coached at UConn after her playing career, and has been the color analyst for CPTV and SNY's UConn women's basketball coverage pretty much ever since. So hello, Megan. How's it going? Uh, how's your quarantine going? <laughs> Uh, hello. Uh, uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, my quarantine, uh, let's just say it's been very full, and that would be full of weight. I've gained a lot of weight over these last uh, many months, but I think the plan, the, our first broadcast will be coming up soon, so now that's the carrot dangling in front of me, like I need to lose a couple of pounds before that first game that's my plan we'll see if it works I'll, well i'll check back in with the end of, at the end of november <laughs> i think we're all very much looking forward to the start of college basketball and uconn coming back to finally get a little bit of normalcy going so i want to get into your sny and cptv stuff in a little bit but first we're going to go back 30 years specifically to your playing days so a couple times, Gino's actually shouted out your freshman class in the preseason. So UConn this year has six freshmen coming in, and he has said on a handful of occasions that your freshman class had seven players come in in 1988. Is that right? I thought we had – it was me, Stacy, um, Shannon, Wendy, Debbie, and then Pam. I think we had six. Okay. Could that be right? I don't know. I think there were six of us. There were five of us, and then Pammy – uh, walked on the team. Um, like Debbie Bear, Wendy Davis, Stacey Wetzel, Shannon Saunders, and myself. And then Pammy was from Rhode Island. Um, and there was a bunch of us from Pennsylvania. Uh, me, Debbie Bear, Wendy Davis, Shannon Saunders, and Stacy. we were all from the state of Pennsylvania, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, and then Pammy was from Rhode Island. So yeah, and you know, I've talked with Gino a bunch over the last couple months about the fact that they are, they do have this huge freshman class. Um, and he has referenced some similarities. However, I think this group has a lot more talent than we did. <laughs> but I, I love to, to have been reading about it and following what's going on. I just love the chemistry that you hear about because we had pretty good chemistry on our team back then. Mm -hmm. um, so those are those intangibles that I think have always made this program unique. Um, but it's fun when you watch it sort of begin and, and, and start to evolve. Um, that's an interesting perspective to have. So then how'd you end up at UConn? Because you mentioned you were from Pennsylvania. UConn obviously wasn't anything close to the basketball powerhouse okay. it was today in either sport, men's or women's. So what was the recruiting process like and why'd you pick UConn and what were your initial impressions of it? Um, that's a good, gosh, that's a great question. I haven't had it in a long time. Um, you know, when I think back, uh, the reason I came here was uh, really because of Gino and CD. I mean, it was all about the people and Ellen Clark was an assistant and Steve Segrist and they were great and I'm still in touch with those guys. Um, 
But I remember my first conversation with Chris Daly, we talked for like an hour. Um, and her, um, she's from New, uh, New Jersey, and she knew my uncle and my aunt and my cousins, and she knew a bunch of people. We were both born at St. Peter's Hospital, or she was born at St. Peter's Hospital. My mom was born at St. Peter's Hospital. So <laughs> we, we had all of these strange similarities. And then the first time I talked to Gino, it was a very similar kind of fun conversation and talked for a long time. They were easy to, to talk to, and, and that was just sort of it, you know? And, um, Gosh, that, I, I remember the first time I saw him at a, it was at Kathy Rush basketball camp and the ball, we were playing on these outdoor courts and the ball goes rolling over and he's standing by the tray and I'm like, really? He can't even kick the ball back to me? Um, but he told me later, because I busted his chops, like, really, dude, you can't kick the ball back to me? What the hell's wrong with you? And he goes, yeah, that was the point. Like, he wanted me to come over. Maybe we would have like a little exchange. There was nothing said. Um, but he, uh, they were just really normal, uh, fun people. And then even the campus, it didn't bother me. Like, I, th I thought the campus was pretty. And I remember driving the Merritt Parkway with my, the first time I came up to campus was with my dad. I don't think my mom was with me. We were driving to the Cape, I think, because we have a place up, and my parents have a place in Wellfleet. So we were driving, I'm like, the Merritt Parkway, wow, this, this is really pretty. This is back when you could like lay, you didn't have to sit in the seatbelt. Um, you saw the trees and I'm like, wow, this is a really pretty road. And, and I'm from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So it's pretty, the, the ruralness kind of of both areas was very similar. So a lot of it felt like home. Um, and it didn't even occur to me that the field house was a dump. Like, <laughs> didn't occur to me. Um, they were great people and, and I'm still close with both of them. So I guess, you know, it's worked out. How bad actually was the field house? Because it's been gone as a basketball arena for so long. And nowadays I hear stories like you had to put buckets out on the court because the, the ceiling buckets, would link. And... Buckets and towels. Um, and there was this blue, there was a huge, um, it was like this blue tarp that would hang and it would kind of just go around the perimeter of the court. Um, so there was that green court, right, all along the, the huge field house. And then there was a, a, a basketball court, like kind of in the middle. And there was a bunch of, I think there were more than one set of hoops. But the, the, the court that we played on, they would put down like in the middle. And then, then there was a track that went around the outside. So the track team would be running. They would shoot the starter gun. The shot put was going into this net. And... Baseball players were hitting into a net. It was complete and utter insanity. I can remember Nadav Hennefeld being, uh, get, get coming to practice late, and he was just running around. He just ran around the, like, while the men practiced inside this crazy contraption of, like, net and, like, tarp. And then Nadav would just run around for, like, the entire two hours of their practice, um, running with the track team. Like, it was crazy. Um, but it was the greatest home court advantage. And... And again, it was so long ago. So it was 1988 was my freshman year. It was so long ago that we didn't know, we didn't know any different. We, this is all we knew. I had been to like St. Joe's arena in Philly, but that was a small little gym. It was nothing big. We were just so blissfully unaware of what we didn't have. And we just thought what we had was great. And we had, we had no idea. What's it like then going into Gamble? Cause 
obviously that was a first class facility when it was built. And I know this past year, it was the 30th anniversary, I believe, yeah, we, of Gamble yeah. opening. And Gino said his biggest takeaway was it, it was like a spaceship had landed in the center of campus. Absolutely, because I think it was my sophomore year that we moved in. Um, and it was, we couldn't even believe that we were going from this locker room that we had to vacate our locker room after the season. And we would share, because visiting baseball needed a locker room, we would share like a communal locker room with women's soccer and maybe field hockey. But again, we had no idea, right? We thought it was, to me, it was great because we got to know all the other athletes. And that was what I thought was really cool about the field house. I would be in the training room, like I dislocated my shoulder and I was in there with baseball players who had shoulder problems. And you just got to know all the different athletes, um, I think more than they do today. And obviously today they've gone from not only Gamble, but now they have the Worth basketball mm -hmm. facility, which is incredible, but it's a little more isolating too. But to your question, so we move into Gamble and it's like, holy crap. And then it was, oh my God, we're gonna charge people? to come to our games. I think it was $2 was the first charge. And I can remember being in the field house and Chris Daly taught a jogging class and she gave kids extra credit to come to our games. <laughs> we didn't have any fans. So it's like, how far? And now it's like, oh my God, $2? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know if we should charge two bucks. That's a little steep. And we did, and people were like, well, shit, man, we'll go watch these girls play. They're pretty good. And then I think it went to seven bucks. Um, and look where we are now. You know, it's come a long way, but um, it, to me, the coolest part of all of this is to have been able to be there in the beginning and then to see where it's come. Uh, and the fact that it's still Gino and CD, like that's pretty cool to be able to see the whole evolution. I forgot how it, came up but at some point recently cd was telling us how she taught that jogging class and i'm pretty sure she failed a kid in jogging i don't know how you can humanly fail a jogging class but if anyone would fail someone in jogging it would definitely be cd right there's no shock here i i may have known that and uh clearly forgot it um uh, but i'm not i'm as much as i am uh, a little bit surprised. I'm not shocked. <laughs> You're right. CD. And it, you know what? Because CDs are like, she's a process person. She's a rule follower. And her rules probably weren't that difficult. But damn it, if you don't show up, I'm going to fail you. So you can't probably didn't show up. <laughs> How much have CD and Gino changed? Because as you mentioned, you've been there since the beginning. And it's all these years later, all this success later. Is there a tangible difference in them? Um, not really, like little things, like some, you know, like we're older, like they're in their 60s now, I'm 50. Um, there are natural changes. Um, I think the success of their program, it hasn't, I think success has to change you in some ways, um, but those ways don't have to be bad, like you can't stay the same. Um, I, and I spend more time with Gino than CD. Um, like the biggest difference, like we played golf one time not long ago and he wanted to take a cart. And I'm thinking, really, you don't wanna walk? But like, it was a hot day and he's 66. So 
let's take a card. Like, I've had that. like those are things that I don't think about because I just remember him as my coach in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's just so much time has passed and, you know, we've done so many things together over the years with our families and whatever. And it's like, yeah, like he's no longer my coach. Um, but sometimes that first impression is hard to get out of your head. Um, so he's still the, the same, like incredibly generous. Like he, he'll say stuff with the media. Like you guys probably hear him say a lot of, you know, outlandish stuff maybe. Uh, is he still doing that stuff? Like I haven't oh, been yeah. around. Um, and, and so much of that he does, uh, I think for effect, because he knows giving just like coach speak answers, like how boring would that be for you guys? Right. Do what you're doing. And like, he wants to have fun with it. And so that's how he is at all times. Like he loves to tell jokes and sit around and tell stories. And, and it's all about connecting with people and basically just laughing your asses off. Like if that, if you can't do that in different situations, like then why are you doing it? You know? And so to me, he's very much the same. He just has a lot more money now, you know, and Chris is the same <laughs> thing. Um, I mean, I know we keep in touch, not quite as frequently, but she's so solid. And I, and whenever I need her for anything, which if I do, I know she would be there as I would be for her. Like we, we connect and giggle every once in a while, something funny will happen, you know, and it's also been so weird over the last almost year, 10 months. It's like, we haven't done anything or gone anywhere. So, um, but they're, they're both great and, and um, have great relationships with so many former players awesome you know you kind of talked about how Gino loves to crack jokes do you have like a favorite Gino joke story either from when you were playing or afterwards doesn't matter um there are gosh that's a good one Megan um there's a lot of funny things that he has done there's one story that I have told off and on over the years um because I think it it (laughs) it just bears repeating this one time I was a senior, it was at practice. Rebecca Lobo was a freshman. And it's one of those stories that everyone, and I actually will think of it if I see a squirrel in the road, which I often do and where I live. <laughs> we were running a drill, we we're running a post player drill, like where you, I would, let's say I started at the top of the key, like at the elbow and I would turn around, I would go and set a screen for Rebecca. And like, if she, if she cut low, I would roll back high. If she cut high, I would roll back low. It's like you just read what they do and you do the opposite. And I guess maybe as a group, we were indecisive and we weren't cutting hard and being crisp. And, and so Gino, you know, he, he would kind of manage the guards, but he, he would kind of always, he had eyes in the back of his head. He could see what we're doing. He knows what's going on down there. And, and so he comes, at half court, he comes walking towards where the basket where we were. And we were in Gamble. And he goes, God damn it, stop. He goes, Megan and Rebecca, you gotta cut harder. And he goes, you're like a, uh, and he, he, he like was stammering. He's like, you're like a goddamn squirrel in the middle of the road. And if you're not, if you're not crispy, you're boom, you're dead. And we're like, oh my God, did he just say, like I, we were grabbing our shooting shirts and like trying to put them over our mouth, like to hide the laughter. Like he didn't just say that. Like, and he was totally serious. And I have busted his chops about that over the years. Um, and every once in a while, I'll text Rebecca and be like, little squirrel on the roll, bam, you're dead. 
Like it was just such a random thing, but it was a great line. And, but he would be funny where he would, he would say stuff in practice and his dry sense of humor, he would like say something to bust on somebody or like to, you know, reprimand a kid, you didn't do something right. But then he would always throw a joke in and I would always crack up, Rebecca would crack up. And then over the years we would joke with him like, you, cause the kids may not get, they may not laugh at it or they would cry and it's like, come on, you can't cry. Like it's funny, just laugh at it, you know? So he, um, there's been so many just silly things that he would say. And I would write stuff down when I coached um, with him. Um, one time, this kid, we were I think we were playing Virginia. So a kid on our team missed a back cut and I'm sitting on the bench and he's next to me. And he goes, damn it. And he puts his head down and he starts rubbing his fingers through his hair. And he, and he wanted to say that this kid was a day late and a dollar short on this cut. And he's like, she's a day freaking late short. And I'm like, huh? So I wrote it down on this pad. Like I would chart like what plays we ran on offense and what was successful and what wasn't. And I'd go day freaking late short. So at halftime, we go in the locker room before we go in to talk to the kids, we're talking about stuff. And I think we were winning, but it was close. And I, I just go, I just have one question. Um, day freaking late short. What the hell does that mean? And he goes, I didn't say that. I go, yes, you did. You know, so we bust, you laugh and whatever. And um, so the, the, the key is, I think, is he never takes himself that seriously. And a lot of people probably think that he does, but you guys are around him. So he's got a great sense of humor. And as much as he dishes it out, I think he, I, I, to me, it's always been just as fun dishing it back because he can take it, you know? Well, thank you. I will absolutely never be able to look at a squirrel in the road the same now. Honest to God, me either. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little basketball because you're freshman year I believe was the first team to win a Big East tournament regular season as well and then you guys lost in the NCAA tournament and then you get the next year and you lose in the first round of the NCAA tournament again so then you get to your junior year which now everyone knows the 91 season was the first final four team but two heartbreaking NCAA tournament losses did you actually ever think you were going to win one? Oh my god um I can still remember those games. Like, how do we play so stupidly? Um, uh, you know, it's funny, like, especially that junior year, like, we had no idea. I don't want to say we had no idea what we were doing, but we had no idea what we were about to embark on. Like, we certainly never thought we would, like, be shut out of the tournament. Um, but it is interesting, though, when you have the vantage point of being able to look back and then you look around college athletics in particular, but sometimes when you're young, sometimes you're just not ready to win that game for whatever reason. And it makes you go back and work differently. And, and, and sometimes it's heartbreaking. Sometimes it's deserved. Sometimes it's not deserved, you know, but you got to take, you know, what happens and take your lumps. But, and then, but I don't know if you remember this, our junior year, we, I forget who the first round game was. And then we were playing Toledo. And we won that game. 
on a very controversial play. It was in Gamble. There was a controversial play at the end of the game. Like it was a, a, a pretty high scoring game. I think it was in the seventies, which back then was a lot. And I had fouled out dope and Carrie Baskin played unbelievable. And cause she could score outside. She could score inside. She was, she was crazy good. And Toledo was a great shooting team and we get down to the end of the game. There's a long and we're Carrie got fouled. We were down one, I think, and she got fouled shooting a layup and she made both free throws. So I think we're, we're up one, I think. And I'm on the bench, like literally, you know, we were all so stressed out and this was to go to the final four. No, the regionals. I'm sorry. It was to go to the regionals in Philly. And we knew we had circled Philly, like on the, the little poster, which I think I have that poster in my basement. Um, we circled this, this the, in the palestra because there were so many of us, comes back to Pennsylvania, there were so many of us from Pennsylvania. We're like, oh my God, how cool would that be? Like we had no idea in, in the huge context of it, what that actually meant of like the regionals. Like we hadn't even won a game in the tournament. You know <laughs> what I mean? So in that game, I'll never forget Dee Kantner, who's still a, an official in the game today. That, must have been very early on there this one guy kept calling fouls um and they took a shot there was a long rebound and i think he tried to call a foul as the clock expired and she overruled him <laughs> and but there was there was like seconds 30 seconds you know it probably wasn't quite a minute but they had this little meeting at the table and we were dripping sweat, like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? Are they gonna be able to shoot a free throw now and maybe win the game? I think we only won by one. Um, and she ended up, she went like this, she just waved her arms, you know, and we won the game. And without that, we don't go to the regionals and we don't go to the first final four. So I'll, I always have gratitude towards her. And I, it was the right call. Um, but man, that was, it was stressful. Those 30 <laughs> seconds or whatever it was, uh, I'm still, I'm starting to sweat right now. <laughs> Probably the longest 30 seconds of your life, right? Absolutely. Pre-COVID, of course, but. Um. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick ad break and be back with the interview in a second. Do you think your 91 Final Four team gets the recognition and respect that it should? And what should people know about that team that maybe isn't out there? Oh, gosh. You know what? I think, I think that team got a lot of attention on and off over the years, you know. Um, and, and partly because the people involved understand. And Gino is so – one of the things I think is so cool about Gino and, and one of the things I've always – and it was probably what drew me to him immediately. Like, it's just kind of who he is and how he relates to the people around him. And I can't tell you how many girls over the years have said to me how much he refers to players of the past. Like, he's really, he's so good at bringing everyone together. And so he has given that team so much credit off and on over the years to every group that's come through. But as it goes further along, you got to give as much credit to all those other pro teams that have come through the program and players that have come through the program. And those players, like think about someone like Stewie and that team, they won four. Like we just went there and lost. So 
the fact that they're still talking about that particular team at all, like, I think we all appreciate it. And I know all those guys enough to say, I, I can speak for them that, listen, we're, we're appreciative that people even remember that we got there because trust me, we still remember that, damn it, we lost, you know, but you know, you, you do appreciate things differently as you get older and yeah, it was fun and it was great. And it, it was, we were just a part of the process, you know, like a part of building this program and, and what Gino and CD are so good at is uh, always making the, the past teams, no matter how long you go back, even players that were here that didn't play for them, they're still included in stuff. You know, so because once you play in Connecticut, you're always a part of us, whether you like it or not. And if you don't want to be a part of it, you don't have to. But if you want to, we, you know, we'd love to get together. And in fact, last year, you alluded to this before, the 30th anniversary. Um, I was talking to Gino's wife, Kathy, leading up to that, that weekend. And I go, Kath, I think we have to have a party at your house. I think that's what we have to do. And we did after that, we, there was a ceremony, there was a little thing they did before the game. And then we all ended up back at their house for, I don't know how many hours. It was awesome. And everyone had a great time and we got to hang out. And, um, and that's pretty much what always happens when, when we all get together, we just hang out, laugh, tell stories. And if you have family members with you, friends with you, bring them in. Like it, that just means our group expands, you know? So that's kind of, so as far as that team, hey, we, no one could believe that they celebrated the 30th anniversary of Gamble, which is basically that team. Um, like, holy crap, how is it 30 years since this place opened? But it was a great excuse to get together and have a good time. Yeah, that, that's pretty awesome. I remember Gino talking about that last season, and I think he made some comment like he was up until like the wee hours of the morning with everyone. So then after your career ended, you moved on to the sideline with the team. What was it like after playing with uh, for Gino and CD the whole time, then becoming a coach with them? And then not only that, but you're coaching some of your former teammates. It was kind of, um, you know, it's so many players do it. Um, so it's sort of a natural progression in some respects. Chris Lamb had done it. Um, before me and I, it was something that I was interested in and obviously it wasn't something that I wanted to do for my life, but I loved the experience. And I remember at that time saying, every college athlete should coach at least for one year in their program or anywhere else to understand what goes into your experience. Cause they, kids have, you know, kids are naturally self-absorbed and that was 30 years ago. Think of how much more kids are absorbed, <laughs> self-absorbed today. Um, and I, I appreciated learning in a different way from Gino and CD and, and Tanya Cardoza. Wendy was with me. Wendy Davis and I coached together one year as assistants, and then she moved on. And then Tanya Cardoza came in. And uh, I loved the experience. I just knew I didn't want to be a head coach. Like, I, I don't think... People maybe now do, but back then, for sure, they didn't. They, it's an all-consuming lifestyle. And I thought, oh, I want to have a family. And to, to be able to have a family, it's hard to be on the road as that often. And um, at the time, it was just not – and I, and as it turned out, so I left 
I'm going to jump ahead and probably ask your next question. So then <laughs> I knew I didn't want to be a head coach. I, I, I sort of got lucky and like left on top, right? We win in 95. And I remember going to lunch with Joe D'Ambrosio one day and he goes, listen, there's obviously, because I wanted to get into broadcasting and there was an option for TV or there was an option for, because DPTV had, had started doing the games. And, and he goes, listen, he kind of made a pitch like you can learn in radio and then see where it goes and maybe you can go into TV after that. And, and it made a lot of sense to me. And, it, and as it turns out, I'm so thankful that I did it. To start, so I did TIC for one year, I think it was 96. Um, and we, I think we broadcast every game, but Joe D was such a great guy to learn from because he's such a good radio play-by-play -play guy. I learned a ton um, to learn in the broadcasting space, at least for me, to, if you have to be really succinct and then be able to expand later on, that's better than just going out there. Like a lot of guys, you know, retire and then they go work on, in TV and they, they just blah, 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 blah. But like, to me, it was so much better not having, I mean, I was a communications major, major but I didn't learn the craft. But that year with Joe, I was, I was really thankful because I learned a ton from him. And, um, and then I got lucky enough to be able to go into CP, uh, TV the next year, which was CPTV and work with Mike Gorman, who is another uh, incredible play-by-play -play guy and, and great person. So uh, I, I've, I've learned from some great people. Yeah, as a fellow communications major at UConn, I also agree. I learned nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, but at least now, like back then, I think it was all theory and like small group communication. There was no TV. There was no, there was nothing, but you know what? It is what it is. And I had a great, I had a great college experience, both, you know, living on campus and I wasn't, a, I wasn't the greatest student and my kids <laughs> love to hear that story. Um, but you know what, your experiences kind of shape who you are. And um, I, uh, I will never, ever, uh, you know, forget the great time that I had at UConn. So you said you knew you kind of wanted to get into broadcasting. When did you figure that out? Like, did you know that kind of your senior year kind of took some time? You know what, I think when, as maybe my junior year when we started doing more TV, because like in the beginning, there was no very little coverage. We had TC Carmel from the Willamette Chronicle, probably Carl Adamak from the Journal Inquirer. He was around, I think those, and then the, and there was a kid, Adam Minichino. I think that's how you said his name. He was a daily campus writer. I think those were like our three most consistent reporters um, on the scene. And, and it, I always enjoyed talking to people. And then our junior year, and certainly towards the end of the season, as we won and we get to the final four and we started being around more stuff. And I think because we were the sort of Cinderella team, um, you know, Robin Roberts followed us around and, and all of this stuff. So it, I think that's maybe when I got the bug for it. Um, and I thought, oh, let's give this a try, you know? And it, But trust me, there was never a master plan. Like, like I'm, I'm 50 and I'm like, okay, what am I doing? What's next? So uh, you just sort of, I just sort of got some, I got lucky, got some opportunities and it's crazy how I've been like, it's crazy how long I've been doing these games, but it's worked out well because I have kids. Um, you know, I have a husband and three kids. So it, it, 
it's really a perfect amount of, of staying in it and being involved and not being gone all the time. And that was, as a working mom, like that's the hardest balance that I know so many of my friends who are working moms, like that's the hardest struggle. Like, how do you do this? And so I've been able to, to still be involved and it's my program and it's still my, my coach that's there. Like, so I keep waiting for them to be like, all right, this is, you've had too much. You gotta go, you're out. Cause it's been, I've, I feel like a little kid. You were saying Hannah, how like, you know, when you guys went to the final four for the first time, you started to see more of that media coverage and you kind of believe like what it's at today. Now you've got like Paige on like the cover of Slam in high school, like how much it has changed. No, I remember um, Rosati was on the cover of Sports Illustrated shortly after we graduated and we were just like, or no, it was, that was 95 after that game, like 95 stuff got crazy. Um, and even, and I can remember being in the parade, there was the first parade in Hartford, we were sitting in a convertible. And I think it was, it was me and Gino and CD and Tanya, I think all four of us were in one car. And we kept going, we kept giggling to ourselves, like, can you believe all these people are here? Like, is this really happening? Like, we were so shocked. And to think, and again, I kind of said this before, like to think of where it started, and then, and then you, you know, you bring up the media angle, like to think of the, the coverage and, and, and what it is now, it's, it's staggering to me. And I don't, like, it's funny, like, I think the, the think of the 90s uh, and then the 2000s, um, as it was growing, like, it's been an interesting, there was this huge ascension, like, and and then it's leveled off a little bit. And now it's such a weird time. Like, I don't know if people care as much, but I don't know what anyone cares about anything because there's nothing really on TV. Like our sports are kind of playing, but they're kind of not. So now it's kind of a weird time, but the one consistent is, and, and I can't tell you how many people say this. Oh my God, I can't wait for the basketball season. I can't wait. And, and someone I read today, someone's like, well, I'm bummed that I can't go to the games, but at least I can watch them, you know? So and people have always said these games get them through the winter. And I'm like, I remember when nobody cared about women's basketball and now it gets them through the winter. So it's pretty fascinating to me. And again, I, I just, I just feel lucky that we live in, in a place where people actually care. What was it like for you when CPT no longer had the rights to games and then SNY took over because you've, you were there for both. And I remember being a younger kid and just in, like burned into my brain are those pledge drives that CPTV would have at like every commercial break in halftime. Yeah. Yeah. Like just what was, what was all that like? Well, it's so interesting because just the other day I was, my husband and I were in the car and we were driving by CPTV and I go, Oh my gosh. It's so, and I, it doesn't always hit me because I'll drive by a lot on asylum. Um, but I'm like, can't believe how many years and I said it out loud I go it's so strange to me to never go in that building anymore and for so many years of my life I my car was on like autopilot to go there because Gina would have a show and we would tape it at eight in the morning and we would have events there and things there and 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 now it's not there like it's the obviously the station is still there um so that was just a funny thing that happened yesterday um you know it's it's such, I, I've come, I, I've come a long way because it's been quite a long time now. 
Um, I remember being so thankful to CPTV because they really stepped out when no one did. And they did the games in 95 and they, they captured a little lightning in a bottle. And, and then the fact that it grew to be the greatest moneymaker for public television in the country. And they even tried to mimic it, I believe in, in Tennessee. I don't know, maybe it was, you know, with, with obviously the Vols, like was it Knoxville, Nashville? I'm not sure where their CPTVs or where their public television station is located, but they tried to simulcast a game there while we did our broadcast. And they were hoping to sort of, you know, create that same sort of buzz down there and it never worked. So, you know, uh, Jerry Rifkin, no, Larry Rifkin was his name and Jerry Franklin had been the president, but, but Larry Rifkin was sort of, I think, the genius of that at, at CPTV. Um, and he's also the guy that brought Barney to television. Um, but I know that's kind of funny. Um, but it, for whatever reason, it worked here, right? And it was unusual, like, you know, the beg breaks, as everyone would call them. Like, um, it was tough. And it, it was tough for people. But as much as it was tough for people to sometimes listened to over the course of, of many games in a season, it also raised so much money. Like it was staggering the money that, that, that people would call in to get a coffee mug or a blanket or whatever it was. Um, it's something that today, like it's almost hard to explain to people, like you got to think about this, a women's basketball team played and you know, and you go through it and you're, and people will be like, what? But it happened and, uh, it was it was pretty incredible, and then when you when the rumors started about it going to SNY, I remember thinking, all right, well, that's it. Like I had a pretty good run because I think I did the games for 17, 18 years. Wow. I think that was right. It was, yeah, I think so because it started in '97 was my first year, um, and it was like eight years ago. I think eight, I've been on SNY now. I think it's been eight years. Um, and I thought to myself, like, I was sad because change is hard and, and, you know, you got the loyalty, like they stepped up when nobody cared. And then, but when you try to be objective and look at it and say, okay, the, maybe the money transfer is, was maybe kind of a wash, but it's like 14 more, 14 million more homes. And it's like, okay, we're like, I guess, and I never got into the weeds of these conversations, but it, it seemed like, okay, we're now going to go from jv to varsity you know like expand mm -hmm. the brand be able to 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 spread it all over new england but if you have a satellite dish like i would get texts from people like in florida uh, all around the country watching the games so so that was i i get why why uconn thought okay this is maybe the next step in the progression of this program and our coverage and whatever and and i remember interviewing with kurt gowdy jr who is uh, my boss at SNY, and I said, listen, I'd love to, you know, whatever our conversation was, I just remember walking away going, he's a really nice guy. Like, if I get the, if I get it, great. If I don't, well, it was a good run. And fortunately, I got the job, and, and I'm still doing the games, and the, the, every single person that I've worked with at SNY, like, they're unbelievable people. Like, the guys who work in the truck are the best, um, and we have a great time. So, um, and Gino loves hanging out with the guys from the truck and, and it's just a really, and they, and, and I, 
I love that the first production meeting I sat in, in Manhattan, in their offices, um, they talked, they, you know, you see pictures of the Jets and back then they did all a bunch of Big East games. They do the Mets and the UConn women. Like, okay, so you got all these pro teams, these college men's teams, and then yet you're, you've gone out on such a limb to get the rights to do these women's like the UConn women's games, like, again, remember guys, like I remember when nobody cared about women's basketball. And so now I'm sitting in, in New York city in a, in a network where they are putting UConn on par with eh, the Jets and the Mets. Now say what you will about, you know, how successful they have been, but who cares? They're still pro teams mm-hmm. and, you know, successful organizations over time and blah, blah. So I, uh, and it's like, and they're terrific and they, they invest so much in this package and they don't just do it as like, ah, we just want to do it. They really care and they want it to be good and they invest a lot. And so it's a really good partnership and they're, and they're great people and we have a good time and who knows what'll happen this year. So your broadcasting career is basically like a cat. You just keep keep surviving everything because when the new AAC TV deal got announced a couple of years ago, whatever it was, the plan was basically that most of the games were going to move to ESPN plus. And from uh, at least on the outside, what it looked like was that SNY was going to be pushed out of the agreement, whether UConn wanted it or not. Now, obviously UConn moves over to the big East SNY staying on to broadcast games. So just what was that whole spectrum of emotions of the way it went over all those months. Yeah, it was kind of the same thing. So like when CPTV was going to SNY, I'm like, oh crap, what's going to happen? And I was, you're right. I was like a cat. Like, okay. So that was, that was like life number two, maybe. And so now when the AAC was going to do their thing and then there were these rumblings of the big East and we're going to go there. And then I, I, this is one thing age does do for you. And I work hard at this. I'm like, you know what, if I can't control it, why am I going to get really stressed out? Like, it doesn't do me any good. Like there's nothing I can do. And Hey, let's just hope it works out for the best. And so fortunately the timing of it worked. I mean, and think about it now, like to be able to, okay. So to be back in the big East, which is really great. And then I was, really actually pretty happy that all the parties involved realized SNY's kind of commitment and value to this whole proposition because they do do so much for women's basketball. And I know Gino and UConn appreciate what they do um, because they do, they put a lot into it. Not, not only the financial part of it, but they, they, you know, they're not just phoning it in. Like they, they work hard and they invest in every facet of the production. So that part's pretty cool. And, and now that we're in a world where flying is kind of tricky and, and where are we going, what can we do to have thing, to have it now be a little bit more regional? Well, that's another blessing in disguise as well. So I guess to make you put your Nostradamus hat on, if <laughs> CPTV doesn't, do what they did in 1995 and they don't get lucky with it being 1995 is UConn women's basketball what it is today whether it be the coverage the fan base and the success I don't think so I I I really believe I remember thinking it then 
and you know going through that whole process and kind of living it and sometimes it's hard to really think about it as you're going through it um but looking back i think cptv played such a critical role in the success and the notoriety but just the awareness of yukon women's basketball um and i know gino i i, I would guarantee he would say the same thing you know and it was you know I, I was sad when when it changed but you know change it doesn't always have to be bad like it probably wasn't great for cptv but hey listen they reinvented themselves and are, are, are still alive and doing great and so um but and as far as yukon the yukon women cptv was a critical piece of of them in their ascension into kind of where they are as a program um that is you know one of if not the best women's program in the country yeah for sure I, it's just like as as you've mentioned it's just amazing how all, the, all those factors came together at the perfect moment and then it seems like once it moved to SNY like obviously getting Brianna Stewart helps but it then also just like exploded from there I think so and you know sometimes like I meant I said this phrase earlier like whether it's lightning in a bottle or things line up whatever sort of phrase you want to use the time the timing for these guys has been right for all of these external factors to help them to become who they are but at the core if they're not doing what they're doing it, all this other stuff doesn't matter so they keep recruiting great players great people and putting them together making them work as groups and and i remember back then you know you, that first championship okay that's great wonderful how about he has done that 11 times <laughs> Like, it's crazy when you think about what he and Chris, what they have been able to sustain over the last 33 years, like it's unheard of in sports. So the respect I have for them, and, and with all the changes from the Fieldhouse to Gamble and then Worth and they play at XL and, and to go from driving everywhere like we did with Watson, our bus driver, to chartering everywhere, um, and yet their process is fundamentally the same. And that's why they're good is because they don't get too cut up and all of the minutia and the garbage and all the noise outside. They are all about process and this is what we have to do. And every day they go to work to get better. And some days are better than others, but they work at the little things, whether it's the footwork, whether it's um, the, the chemistry, whether it's how you make this cut, all of that stuff, but it's also on themselves. And he's, he's changed and every year he changes. And so it's, it's fascinating to me. And to me, that's the study of how they have been able to do what they have done for 33, 34, however many years they've been there, how they've been able to sustain that level of, of excellence for that amount of time so consistently, it's absurd. Right. When people are having meltdowns because they haven't won a national championship in four years, four years, one class of students or as of 
well, my class of students, I'm not mad about that at all, but <laughs> one class of players has come through that hasn't won a national championship and it's like the sky is falling. And so ready, it's you, it's Mel Thomas, Mm -hmm. it's my class that's that's we got that in common so now we got our own little group so i forget who's in Mel's class but we got our own little group now so i'll start us on a text thread soon perfect nice little support group then that's it it is <laughs> it is i didn't want to say therapy but that's kind of what it is <laughs> i got the opposite because i got the four all four you got all four yeah well you know what megan we don't like you <laughs> yeah, I know. You know what? I think the the message here is you got to keep her around. That, yeah, she's, you're right. She's making this thing legit. <laughs> so then, what do you think about this year's team? I mean, ton of talent coming in, but they're young. Yeah, you know what? I think it's great, and and it's and it's been so bizarre yet so interesting. And I haven't been up there. Um, did you, are you guys allowed in? Can you watch them practice? No, we've only been doing Zoom. And then for like the start of official practice, they sent us some footage and some photos, but that's pretty much it. Wow. So that'll be interesting to broadcast our first game and not having seen them play. But at this point, like, who cares? Let's just get, hopefully get to the game, you know? Right. Um, I'm excited. I mean, he's really excited about them and, um, What's been kind of cool with as bizarre as this time has been, it does seem like these kids have, what else they got to do really, you know, like, so they spent some, but they're gym rats. So they spent so much time together and whenever you go through crazy stuff, like it does bond you in a different way than if it were just normal times. Um, so I think that, and these guys are good at making, um, making, like a positive out of a negative, you know what I mean? So anyway, I think this group, um, because of the newness, but the energy, and there's, there is that, like I mentioned it earlier, like when we were freshmen, it's like this blissful ignorance. Um, that all they want to do is play, you know, and, they, and then now, like they see all these banners on the wall of the, the names and the championships. Um, there, I think there's an excitement um, and an energy that, maybe wouldn't be here if we weren't in this crazy time. And what they can fall back on too is, like he's the best to me, like I'm not just saying this because he's my buddy and whatever, because I would bust his chops before I would say this, but he's the best at getting players to play their best. Like that's what he's great at. He's great at motivating. He's great at putting them together and I know he'll find a way to make these guys play their best basketball. And it may not look perfect in the beginning, but they just get better and get better and they peak at the right time. And that's, I mean, he's done that for 30 plus years. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited, you know, right now, like we're all just excited for something other than our house, yeah. you know? So um, I'm pretty, I'm excited to see them play. I don't know if I will before November 28th, our first broadcast, but um, at the, this time, beggars can't be choosers, you know? And I'm a beggar, so I'll just take whatever <laughs> I can get. Well, you mentioned that Gino seems excited about this team. You obviously know him better than we do. So is it a different type of excitement for this team compared to the past? You know what? I, that's a good question, but I don't know if I could answer it in any other way. I think every year he's excited. 
because it's always a, a different group of kids. Um, but this year, everything's off the table because it's COVID and you gotta wear a mask and you can't, they get their temperature every day when they walk in and you can't do anything and you can't go anywhere. And so maybe this year the excitement will be, and I joke with him a little bit like, cause I always want them to go old school. Um, cause I'm old school, like he's old school, but he's, but he's good enough that he has evolved with time. Cause it, 66 he can't be like an old school 66 year old with 18 year old kids in 2020 like that doesn't totally fly so he's he's good in that he can evolve but at the same time um right now it's just keeping it simple like it's just basketball like that's and we're so lucky to have it like there's that too that energy of like we get to play like we can play five on five because they were doing their little pods right for a while and they didn't, they couldn't play five on five. So at least I think there's an appreciation for the game and for each other and for being together. And I think that he will make the most out of that. And that will transcend to some really cool stuff on the court. That's I would think. Cool. So uh, we're going to wrap up, but before we do, we have some rapid fire questions for you. So Ooh. just first thing that comes to your mind, who, in your opinion, is the greatest player in program history? Brianna Stewart. Mm, well, interesting. Uh, greatest player? No, no, that's a lie. Um, <laughs> Diana Taurasi. Interesting. What I I know I just said rapid fire. What's behind the switch I, it there? Took me t it took me 10 minutes to answer the question, so I wasn't very <laughs> rapid in my response. What was your question? Uh, your what, what made you, like, why do you think? Because I think she was... Uh, she got the, I thought she was the best, but she also made everyone else around her better. And I said Stewie at first, cause she won the, we were just talking about her and she won the four and no one's won four. Right. And, and look what she's done post-college. But I still think Diana for what, how she made everyone else better. I, I think Diana. Interesting. Who, which team do you think is the best one ever? I think that 2000 team, that Sue, D, Swin, um, Tamika, Asia, Stewie, or um, Shuey, <laughs> Kelly Schumacher, um, I think that team was pretty legit. There's been a lot of great ones, so it's like splitting hairs. Right. I feel like the argument for greatest ever comes down to Stewie, Maya, and Diana. And then the argument for greatest team ever is basically that 2002 team or Stewie's senior year. It's pretty, it feels like those two pretty much. I know. I know. But like to go 2002, and it's like, well, how can you not pick a team that had Sue, D, <laughs> Maria? And Maria like just did steady Eddie stuff. Mm -hmm. But then it also had Swin, Tamika, Asia. Like, wow. Like that was. And then Kelly Schumacher blocking shots left and right. So it's, right. it's an embarrassment of riches, you know. <laughs> Who's a player you think doesn't get their due? Um, well, Carrie, well, Carrie Bascom, I think, gets credit. But she was a great – she was a much better player than anyone has any idea. I also think Svetlana is wildly underrated. She, she was a three-time All-American. <laughs> like – you know what? That's a great call. Sveta, Sveta was 
an unbelievable player. And that's the hard part. When so many great players have played here, you do, some get lost, but, but again, on the inside, everyone knows everyone, everyone actually is treated the same because ever, as long as you're like fun and want to have a good time, we have, we have a blast (laughs) together, but, but, uh, but yeah, Sveta was, Sveta was unbelievable. Well, extremely important follow-up to what you just mentioned on an Instagram live this summer, Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi said that UConn players can out drink anyone. Is there truth to that statement? 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe 110%. So you come to UConn, you learn to be a really good basketball player and you learn how to put them down. You know, I don't know. I think it's more of a, at least for me, it's more of a post college. Well, no, that's a lie. Because uh, I played so long ago, but in terms of our t- our program and stuff, um, we've been very lucky that for tw- uh, obviously minus this past year, but we've gone to the Final Four tw- what twelve years in a row or something silly. So that's like a that's like a reunion every year for all of our former players, and it just has become this great event where we all get together and. Um, it, it does get a little silly, but it, and th- there are people that from the outside who come and try to get involved and, and keep up and they seem to struggle. <laughs> it's amazing. I think like a handful of former players have been asked that and the answer every single time is consistently, yeah, absolutely. Like it's not even close. It's an incredible thing that I think doesn't get enough due since we're speaking about <laughs> underappreciated things. Um, obviously with 11 national championships, like there's going to be some that just kind of, Oh yeah, that year, that year. Do you think there's any teams that necessarily don't get talked about for being as good as they were? Well, it's funny when I think back, like I can't keep them all straight. Like I don't, <laughs> and part of it's my age and I probably should know like bum, 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 bum. Huh? But there's so many, which sounds obnoxious and I don't mean it to, but I just, I don't like, you know, it's funny, like think about, well, I don't know if this totally answers your question, but I think it was in, I think, I think we played Oklahoma. It was Diana's senior year, which I think Maria, it was her, Maria Conlon, uh, Morgan Valley, but Morgan was always, she always had bad feet. And so she was injured. Jessica Moore like tore her ACL in that final game. I can't remember who else was on Ashley battle. It was kind of a hodgepodge group of, of players. Like it wasn't like this outs, like the, like Sue and Swin and Tamika and Asia. And it was a group of just solid players who played really well together, but they had Diana and that team won a national championship. When you look back, you're like, how in the hell did these guys win a national championship? And that's where Diana to me, um, earned a lot of her stripes, just in my opinion, uh, because in some respects, that team probably had no business winning, but she willed them to win. Hmm. So that's how I look. Even though that didn't answer your question at all. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Uh, what's your preference, Gamble or Excel? Gamble. Yeah, okay. So you're like everyone else on the planet then. Well, and ironically... I live in West Hartford, so XL is like three and a half miles from my house. So XL is far more convenient, 
but come on. Unless now Excel, you know, 16,000 back in the day when there'd be 16,000 people, it's pretty loud, pretty yeah. great. And it's, it can get loud, but there's nothing like Campbell. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, which rivalry, Notre Dame or Tennessee? I think I hate Notre Dame more. And I'm Irish, so go figure. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's got 11 right now. How many titles does Gino retire with? Mm, let's say 15. Okay. I think that's fair. I think if they get AZ, I mean, I don't know if I've publicly said this, but I think if they get AZ, I don't think they lose a game for the three years that her and Paige play together, as long as both players are as good as they're expected to be. Correct. And they stay healthy and, you know, right. all of those things have to play out. Um, I, I would, yeah, I would agree with that. So let's 15 is probably a safe. It's not, I don't think an obnoxious unattainable number could happen. <laughs> not an obnoxious unattainable number that I think is more national championships than everyone else besides Tennessee has four more. <laughs> yeah. How many no. do they have? How many do they have? Tennessee has ten. They have seven? 10. They have no. 10. No. Yeah, because I, when in Indianapolis he got eleven, and that he passed was, Wooden. Was that what that was? Yeah, here I'll look it up. Tennessee, Tennessee has eight. Tennessee has eight. Yeah, I don't think they're close to him. No, he they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, they have eight, and they've also lost in national championship games, which is something UConn's never done. Should be noted. <laughs> Yes, that's an interesting stat. However, those um, last second shots in the semifinal, oh, yeah. they don't feel any better. <laughs> I mean, like, I say this all the time, but UConn should have 13 national championships. I have no idea how, well, just how neither of those, or like one or the other didn't win a national championship is still mind-blowing to me. I know, and that's the beauty of sports. You just never know. Right. <laughs> Literally can't win all of them. That would have been six in a row. <laughs> I know. That's, speaking of obnoxious, that's obnoxious. <laughs> that's going to do it for this episode of Chasing Perfection. We hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did. Big thanks to Meg for coming on again. You can follow Megan Gower here on Twitter, at Megan Gower. You can follow me on Twitter, at Daniel V. Connolly. Daniel. Daniel. Not aimed at anyone in particular. Uh, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review helps boost the podcast subscribe to the yukon women's basketball weekly newsletter read the yukon blog in stores central megan you got anything uh, make sure you wear a mask so we get to have a basketball season that'll do it <laughs>